The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is not Anthony Corona. This is actually Miss Ruth, your BPI ally friend. And this is part two of our Pride Connection podcast with Dr. David Rosen, Director of Training and Education, and Amy Simon, President of LGBT Senior Housing and Care. I think we should touch on intersectionality. We we did speak briefly about that. Just the idea that... Um, Nobody's only ever just one group, like blind or gay, that we're all many things. So my question is, how would you suggest we proceed so we can chip away at that mindset that you can only focus on one area of your identity at a time? I think what we need to start thinking about is how the different parts of a person interact We talk a lot about intersectionality. What happens at an intersection? It's the crossing, right? It's it's where different avenues meet. So if you are, say, male and gay, how does the maleness impact being gay? How does being gay impact the maleness? Add on white. What is being a white person who's gay and male? How do all three of those interact? And we need to start seeing, okay, when you're African-American, let's switch out the race. What does that do? I heard from a client who had talked about when Black Lives Matter first started getting into our, our consciousness and I think it was 2020. Uh, it was a gay man who uh, was in a chat room, a gay parenting chat room, right? So everyone there are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, but they're parents um, of children. And he brought up BLM. And they said, that has nothing to do with us. Hmm. But yeah. he was a black gay man with a black son who would have to deal with whatever those forces and issues are. And the other people in the room were all just so focused on sexuality 
that they forgot that there's other aspects yes. to it. And yes. so when I'm thinking about intersectionality and I think about the long-term care facilities, I want to know what videos you have. I want to know what reading resources. What are the images you're using? Are you just showing the stock photos because they're free? And those stock photos are all white people who are LGBTQ? Or are you actually looking at who are your clients and your residents? What's meaningful for them? If it's, you know, if you've got a, say, a Jewish uh, nursing home with where most of the residents are Jewish, are you showing Christmas movies? So, you know, or are you looking to meet the needs, that equitable approach? Hudson Pride Center is an organization that I also am affiliated with. And 95% of the clients are of color. We can't focus on mainstream imagery. We have to find films and, and books and things to talk about that matter to a community that identifies on multiple you know, areas that all influence and impact them. You know, it's it's funny that you say that. Years ago, when I worked for the Associated Press, I went to do an article on an infectious disease clinic, which was is code word for an HIV clinic. And it was, you know, in a major medical facility. And as I'm, you know, at that point, I was still sighted. As I'm walking down the hallway, there's, you know, all the posters of, you know, the jolly older woman, um, you, you know, and and she's white and she's happy. And, and the next one is, you know, a family photo kind of thing. And then you walked into the clinic and it was so diverse as far as all of the signage and, and, you know, the handouts, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd see, you know, basically like the United Colors of Benetton, you know, splashed across, you know, how to deal with HIV pamphlet, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and the stark difference when you literally walk through the door out of the main facility into the clinic, it was, it was overwhelming almost. I would then ask, was the facility in an area that had a large patient population that was of color. And so the main facility, which had all these white images, well, were the patients themselves all white? Or what was it basically they're treating non-HIV patients um, with the standard model and then in the HIV clinic, because of all the training that goes on in HIV care on intersectionality, and that has been going on for a couple of decades, yeah. that it's a different perspective. I, I think it's more the perspective than the clientele ratio. I would say the ratio is probably around 60-40. It was Staten Island, New York. I don't think it was based upon the, the population equity, more along the, the training and the perspective of the providers themselves. And so if the 60-40, you're really talking, then there should have been 60-40 in imagery. Absolutely. Not all 100% of, you know, one demographic. That's why it's so important that we be thinking about how each aspect of a person informs their responses to things. And age is also another factor. You know, my perspective as a 50-year-old gay man is not the perspective of an 18-year-old gay man. We Absolutely. have very, very different worldviews. And so age does matter. 
And so it doesn't negate, it doesn't say one's better than the other, but it says that the way you approach the word queer, I'm uncomfortable being called queer. It was a slur that yep. was used against me when I was growing up. But everyone under 25 seems to be okay with it. And I have to allow myself to use it in order to be able to meet them where they're at. But I also want the ability to have the younger generation respect that the older generation may be uncomfortable with it. You know, David, given what we, our mission in, in BPI, I think we can add another notch to that intersectionality belt here, which is disability. So we get into, you know, somebody who is maybe visually impaired and also fits in the LGBTQ plus category. Are pamphlets for various organizations available in an accessible format? If it's a living, you know, facility, are are movies available uh, with audio description? Are there games available uh, that have Braille on them or or large print um, or some sort of tactile demarcation so that everybody can participate? I think that fits into it, too. And I think a lot of people that are visually impaired have trouble at long-term care facilities or adult day centers or even just senior centers because they're not able to participate in the sort of daily leisure activities because they're inaccessible. I absolutely agree with you on that. And what I would then also add to this is what about the LGBTQ organizations themselves? Absolutely. Do they about people with disabilities. Absolutely. Who are a member of the community. And yep. so what needs to happen is that associations of the blind say, do they approach the LGBTQ you know, social service agencies and say, we want to train you no. on how to expand um, yeah. your outreach? Just like the LGBTQ community centers go to other you know, entities that are outside their uh, catchment. And so we need to be really thinking about that. I, I, when you were talking, I'm like going through my head going, do we have anything at Hudson Bryant <laughs> Center for blind or visually impaired? And I'm going, um, I don't think so. We at LGBT Senior Housing and Care only have Braille on our bathroom signs. And I'm just thinking we've just produced a um, LGBTQ plus bingo game, a terminology bingo game, and I haven't even printed it yet. And I'm thinking each box has um, a clip art image, visual image that denotes the term. And I'm wondering, I'm I'm thinking, how can I get it to be raised? (laughs) Can I? The idea, though, being... It, we, we're now having this like thought, the bubble comes because of privilege. Well, I'm printing it big, but I wasn't printing yeah. it, you know, for visually transitioning as with age, but no, not for um, totally impaired. And, and that that's the thing that is so insidious about privilege, because I think privilege hits into intersectionality. The idea that if it's not part of your frame of reference, Mm -hmm. you're not being 
a terrible person for not having thought of it. I, I, I refuse to accept that Hudson Pride Center is a terrible organization because it doesn't have Braille or hearing impaired services. I, I am going to go to my executive you. director and I'm going to tell her about this conversation. And at that point, we will then see what are the next steps? What is Hudson Pride Center going to do? Privilege is really about your luckiness of not having to think about anything right. um, that doesn't Im- yeah. immediately affect you. And not you. wanting I, to learn. My grandmother, uh, so I, I'm a history buff. I love history. I, I do a talk on history. Like I just love history. <laughs> and I love like the old buildings. I love cobblestone streets. And I used to you know, get snarky with my husband anytime I saw them replacing cobblestone s- streets. Oh, you know, I hate <laughs> the modern movement, blah, blah, blah. You know, I agree. <laughs> I, I really glass and, and, you know, like, oh, come on, the you know, all of that, right? Yeah. And then one day I had a, I had a wheel my grandmother. Yep. There you go. Over cobblestone mm-hmm. street. <laughs> and I have never complained since. Uh, it that's was the how you learn, right? horrifying, awful experience uh-huh. trying to get her <laughs> what you did to your grandmother <laughs> to another. what you did to your grandmother. That's awful. So, but I never <laughs> thought about it. It didn't matter until I experienced it. Right. And no one had ever said that to me. Had someone said it to me prior to my grandmother, then it, I would have been made aware of it and I can right. make the changes. So we right. have to be very careful with conversations about privilege, not to attack that the person, you know, who's unaware is doing something wrong. They're just not aware of it. And we can't be aware of everything. We're not everything. We right. are a sectional section. So we have specific things and needs that relate around what is about us. And it's unless we're taught that we can't really move into that other person's frame of reference. Right. And, you know, I actually think that, uh, Mr. Repaired, so there's, there are people, though, from that place of privilege that don't really care. Maybe they do realize. I, I read an article in the Ophthalmology Times, and it was about a, a school of thought that doctors have too much paperwork to do, so they shouldn't have to do all these things about uh, compliance and guidelines. And this is a quote. The doctor said, if the recommending organization cannot prove that the guideline improves patient outcomes, those guidelines are either dropped or not adopted in the first place. So they're just assuming anything you do to comply to make somebody else's life better. We can't prove it you know, improves their outcomes. Let's just drop it. Well, we can prove that it improves their outcomes for Absolutely. the LGBTQ community. There's you know, data proving that. In physical health care, that's not an issue. Uh, well, it's an issue, but there it proves out harder. I think, you know, with mental health care yes. and the you know the nature of you know, the privacy involved too. But that point is true in a lot of other industries. Is it going to make me a dollar to do this? I'm asked this all the time. Is it going to increase my sales? Of course I say yes. But I don't have data for that. We won't have data for that for 
you know, another generation if people keep records. Yeah. People take the data on intake and that that information is available. So in in bringing this back to, to what Leah was saying, you know, there's a lot of talk in, in, in our community because you'll go to eye professionals, whether it be ophthalmologists or optometrists, and there's a problem that they can diagnose, but there's a, a strong lack of resource advisement that goes along with it. So you're told you have a problem, and then it's like, okay, what do I do? Well, um, go talk to the commission, maybe. You, you know, that's, it, that's yeah. kind of the standard answer that you get most places in the country. You know, there are some very progressive areas where, you know, there's great services and it's wonderful. But, you know, the, the more general experience is, well, you know, you're going to have to go to that agency. And going back to, David, what you were saying before, there really isn't a lot of intersectionality coming out of the LGBTQ community. Often we've had conversations, you know, on this show and, and in other programs that we produce where, you know, we have to recognize that we're sort of invisible to the LGBTQ population at large. They're not comfortable. They're, they haven't been exposed to trainings and, and, you know, things that would raise the awareness. So from that, if you look at it from that point of privilege, they're uncomfortable. So let's just pretend that we don't see it. Um, this is Bryn. Um, you know, in going to facilities uh, every day, one of the things I notice is, you know, the the community calendars are inaccessible. The uh, the, the facility wide newsletters are inaccessible. The menus for the week are inaccessible. The the announcements on the televisions that are throughout the facility, you know, the the little placards that talk about, you know, someone's birthday's coming up or what, you know, our bingo night is tomorrow. All of that stuff. Mm is inaccessible. And it's not for lack of wanting it to be. It's a lack of knowledge of the need. You have a facility full of people who are getting older, and many of them, they're starting to become more and more uh, visually impaired. Some of them are undiagnosed visually impaired people who don't know that they're approaching the legal blindness uh, line. And some of them are legally blind and well aware of it, but they don't advocate for themselves or have anyone to advocate for them. They often, many people from older generations don't want to take things from anyone. They don't want to speak up. They don't want to be a burden. Mm -hmm. They don't want to rock the yeah. boat. And so these things go untaken care of. And, you know, we're talking about LGBT issues in uh, facilities like this. And uh, we're dealing with people who have been in the closet for many years. And as you said earlier, uh, maybe I've chosen go to go back in the closet. And so their LGBTQ-related needs are not being met. And, and some of that has to do with the fact that they don't feel like they can advocate for themselves either because of safety or, or just because of lack of wanting to take something from a system where they're entitled to take. They're entitled to these resources but they don't want to take it. And so we, we have to fight harder for them. We have to advocate more for them. When I go to a facility and I say, hey, you know, Margaret has been having a really hard time with all of these written, you know, printed, uh, you know, uh, 
literature Thanks. things that you guys are passing out, we have to tell them about it and make them aware that they have to fix it. I'm curious, Bryn, because it comes back to the question about sometimes it's not necessarily the organization, you know, or the facilities fault. They may just not have thought about those things because it wasn't a reality that they were considering. So it sure. seems to me kind of like the question, the hinge is what does the facility do about it once that issue is raised? Do, are they proactive about fixing the problem or is, is there a degree of apathy where they say, oh, we don't know how to do it. We don't know what to do about it. So we're just going to wring our hands and fail to act. Because that's mm-hmm. to me when it becomes a matter of discrimination is, is, is when the matter is brought to the attention, you know, of, of administration. And there's data that it, that it is definitely um, a problem that, that is impairing somebody's ability to enjoy life and, and, and uh, experience well-being. And so what happens when the issue is brought to bear? To me, that's, I'm curious how many organizations actually act or do they know there's a problem at that point and still resist change? I think it's ultimately going to be a question of resources. And funding, you know, when I, when I think in terms of my experience with the visiting nurse association, so I used to work as a case manager and I would go to home, the homes of uh, the elderly and disabled in a Medicaid program. And we had no money in the grant (laughs) in order to be able to provide items pamphlets information um this was of course also in the days before the internet <laughs> so yeah, was that, it, that was a game know, changer that that, yeah. that was that changed things but because there wasn't enough money for even the you know majority resources let yeah. alone a minority resource we ended up having like an inability that 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 moment where yeah it was made aware i had several blind you know clients and i had to read everything out loud but i had no braille machine i had no ability to to leave them with their care instructions in braille and i had to hope that one of their you know relatives um would be able to help them with that I don't have an easy answer for this because I had the will to do it, but where was it going to come from? That's different from say a, you know, an organization that has the funds and just doesn't care. And it's a question of, you know, how do we focus first? And, you know, I would want to see, well, can we partner grant wise like, are there ways of getting, you know, the Association for the Blind to think about how to provide assistance to those organizations that want to but can't um, because they don't have the resources? I think what's interesting, if I can just just tag tag onto that, because I think it's a critical question. I'm kind of curious what Bryn would say on this, too, because I was an adaptive technology teacher at one point. 
a lot of times the common thought is that it would be very expensive to deal with a lot of these resources that are needed when actually a lot of times these different agencies for the blind would make some sort of low tech recommendations, you know, before email was a possibility or, you know, accessible documents. Most people did own a a tape recorder and a lot of doctors and a lot of facilities, you know, or, or pharmacists would record care instructions onto a tape. And that way, you know, the person had that recording to refer to, you know, and at that time, most people had uh, an ability to get a small um, tape recorder so that they could record essential things, you know, and I think in today's world, you could still do the same thing, you know, with, for instance, like a, a weekly menu or announcements by, you know, maybe recording them onto uh, a small digital recording device, which would not cost a great deal. The solution is not always like pumping out money to, to pay for Braille pamphlets or Braille transcription. I think there are a lot of smaller fixes. I'm curious, Bryn, your, your take on that. Sure. Um, so one of the things I recommended, and I and I didn't know what technology would go into it, but I, I suspected that it would not be hard for them to do. So a lot of these facilities have televisions that play uh, mm. visual, you know, like little marquees on the screen. And I thought most of the time they have those silenced. You know, the TVs are muted. Um, they don't play any audio. And, and so if a person could, say, turn on their room television and go to channels one or whatever... Rather than having silence there or soothing music, just have a box. There, there are these boxes that will uh, that you can hook up to your equipment that you stick an SD card into it, and you've got a recording that just loops over and over and over, like just an MP3 player, even you know, like a cheap MP3 player. Hook it up to your TV system and let that recording for the day loop, and then tomorrow you change it, and the next day you change it. And it takes someone maybe 10 minutes to record everything onto a, onto a new card and let that loop all day long on that TV channel. That would certainly be one way to do it. Another way that we have are things like the pen friend, where you can you know, mark items, uh, you know, so let's say prescription bottles. You could, you could record uh, you know, recordings into these labels and then have them play back when you scan them. They have things like script talk, where you know, they make your, your uh, medications talk. There's a plethora of ways to make it happen. But as David said earlier, I think it was David, a lot of the times it's just lack of knowledge. And, Where do you and go? <laughs> once that knowledge, you can make a lot of things happen and on the cheap too. I'm sitting here like absolutely, my, my jaw is on the, on the table because it never occurred to me to use a tape recorder. Oh yeah. With my, with my clients. Very never great. occurred to me. And that would have been the easiest solution. And we had discussions about the budget and how to get the Braille and how to do this and the cost of the translation and how much thousands of dollars that I could have just done a stupid recording. But because that wasn't my life, I was 24. Like I, I had never known anybody blind in my life until I had these clients. It never occurred to me. It wasn't your reality. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And because no 
no one suggested I talk to someone. (laughs) (laughs) That might have helped. But, you know, again, it's a it's a learning process. It's that idea that we have to be a community of people with different experiences to share, to have an understanding. And I think if organizations for the blind and visually impaired go to LGBT agencies and initiate the conversation, that's as important as LGBTQ agencies initiating the conversations with blind and visually impaired. So that way there's a cross-fertilization of knowledge. Yeah, and I think we need to advocate too in certain ways because a lot of times it becomes a funding thing and it's not even that the funds aren't available. It's that they're earmarked for specific purposes and you're not allowed to play with those purposes. I remember when I lost my sight suddenly, I was 40 years old, and the first person who came out, a case manager, brought a whole bunch of stuff, a shower chair and a long glove for the oven and and. It, and I'm like, what? I don't need a shower chair. I, you, you know, I, I need to learn how to work my phone. I need to know how I can communicate. Oh, um, you know, we can't, we don't handle any of that. Okay, how do I know my medications? Well, there are services you'll have to, you'll have to call one of those services. So I think we need to advocate for, you know, more um, free flowing. I don't know what the right terminology would be. Interfacing. Interfacing of funding to be more broad with services that, you know, when you go into certain hospitals, clinics, they're only dealing with one thing, even mental health. When you go to talk about something, it's like, oh, well, we need to talk about your blindness. No, no, actually, today I'm good with blindness. Today I want to talk about (laughs) LGBTQ. You know, I I think we, the interfacing, that's a great word. That's something we need to advocate for as well. I was just thinking of that, but how do you do that though? I mean, I'm just trying to think of where, how you would get the ball rolling. Uh, there's so many different components of yourself you need to advocate for. Where do you begin? Well, the aging population would be a great place to begin because, you know, as Bryn said, and, and we know this from our, you know, organization itself, you know, how many folks are aging into legal blindness or, or full and complete blindness mm-hmm. and the services don't exist because not, not enough people are speaking up for it. But what else, are, what else are these individuals? Well, some of them are LGBTQ and some of them have mental issues that they want to deal with. And some of them have dietary restrictions. And now we have diabetes on top of that. And we could advocate for the whole and then building service models around the whole rather than, you know, the service models that exist now. All it, apart it, kind of things, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as, um, as Amy said earlier, it would take a generation to get to a place like that, but we'd have to start somewhere. And, you know, usually the two greatest places to start are with the very old or the very young. Continuum of care, essentially, that we're basically saying that everyone needs to be not siloed, but thinking about, okay, I'm LGBTQ focused. But how does that impact Muslims, people in Mm -hmm. wheelchairs, people who are redheaded, (laughs) whatever those things are that we're thinking about, how does my area of specialty need to be tweaked in order to uh, meet the needs that are coming in because of a different intersectional aspect? You know, and I think one of the things is like you use the word siloed 
David. And I, I really feel like that's where everything stops. Like you, you drop your particular uh, group into one area. Like Anthony was saying about when you first are referred to the Commission for the Blind, they do tell you, we'll only do this much for you. And then you really don't know where to go from there. I just right. think there, there should be a way. It's almost as if you need somebody in charge of all of these little moving parts. But I, I'm just still stymied by where to begin as an individual. Well, think about it for a second. Like, how many times have you gone into a doctor's office for something like a rash? Or, or you know, or something minor that, and it's like, oh, you have to go see the dermatologist. Why? It's a rash. Right. <laughs> you went to medical school and did 12 years of residency i'm sure you can tell me exactly what dermatologist is going to tell me unless it's you know flesh eating disease then yeah get me the dermatologist as soon as possible or you call a jewish mother she'll tell you to put some hydrocortisone cream on it or win back if you have a greek mother greek father or just get a consult why can't the primary care doctor say Okay, I'll give a call to my dermatologist, you know, consult and give you a call in a couple of days with thoughts. There's no reason those things can't happen. I think one of the things that we could learn from the HIV world to piggyback on what you had seen when you walked into the HIV clinic is that they've been doing that since the YMY Care Act first came into existence. They have that continuum of care where there is an individual charged with helping an HIV positive person navigate multiple intersectional aspects of who they are. The only area of healthcare that I am aware that has that built into the healthcare system. Yep. We know how to do it. We've been doing it for 30 years. So there's two blindness organizations that are prominent. There's a couple of deaf organizations that are prominent. We have the wheelchair community. We have the diabetes community. And I think the American Council of the Blind definitely caters to a lot more intersectionalities than most other disability organizations. I got to give them credit for that. But we don't reach across the aisle. No, so to speak. we don't. We don't. We, we, we don't partner with anyone. And that's something, you know, we're doing another program on advocacy lessons learned from the LGBTQ community. And that's one thing, you know, that the LGBTQ community did very, very well. They reached out to other marginalized groups that were also fighting their own battles and said, hey, how do we partner up and how do we how can we get louder together? Right. And that's that's what's missing is the navigator aspect, like somebody to to walk you through this whole journey. I was going to say, because it does feel as if you're sort of wandering we are wandering in the dark and we don't know where to turn to next because i've actually been told by various groups well that's that's not what we do and you shouldn't expect it because you're supposed to be independent and blindness is not what's holding you back they say (laughs) that's a that's a phrase from another group but it does seem like they want you to figure it out as if that's part of your you know intestinal fortitude you can figure this out you know you can do this but in the very beginning there really needs to be somebody walking with you. And that navigator would fill that role perfectly. The idea of a navigator care manager exists in healthcare, but it's tied to saving money. That's what the insurance industry has created, those care managers. 
it's not about saving the money. It's about navigation. And we have to change the mindset. In the HIV world, they have care managers, case managers, but their job is not to save money. Their job is to actually connect and link people to the services they need in order to stay alive and to have not just a life, but a quality of life. And that means we have to change the paradigm of how we view care management. It's not about fiscal prudence. It's it's about actually the linking of people to needed resources. Yeah, it blew my mind, you know, when I had walked into that clinic the first time, it blew my mind that there were nutrition services, there were medication, you know, account consultation, anything a client needed, it was either there or there was a referral to where to go for it. You know, it was all housed under that one auspice. And when you think about other countries, healthcare systems, the ones that are really successful are the ones that are catering to the whole of the person rather than specific subsectors and, and specialties and, you know, go to the dermatologist for the rash. No, I'm here. <laughs> I have cortisone. <laughs> you know, why do I got to spend gas or, or bus money to go to the dermatologist when you can give me hydrocortisone? Again, I think it comes to an inability. I feel like this has been a theme of a lot of our conversation this evening, this inability to think outside one's realm or job skill set and not really interface or, or cross communicate. I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's interesting because I'm kind of thinking about this dynamic, the way that children interact. One of my best friends has a six-year-old that I see a lot. This child, her parents are blind and I am totally blind. And a lot of times, you know, she'll say to me, Leah, I want to, I want you to play this game with me. And um, it's, it's a completely, (laughs) it's completely visual game that there's no way that I can play because it's animated. So I'll say to her, Athena, how about we play this game because I'm actually able to play this with you? Or how about we take out the set of cards because it has Braille on it and, and we can play Go Fish and I can play with you or we'll play with your Braille Candyland game. And I'm, I'm thinking sort of if we can start, you know, with kids introducing a way to connect with other people that are not the same as you and think about, you know, what other people might, what, what their skill levels might be, what their needs might be. Can we take that then into adulthood and start having people who can navigate and interface with each other? Because sometimes I wonder whether kids stay so entrenched in their own comfort zones that they don't learn that kind of connectivity where they're thinking outside of themselves. So Leah, you know, you were talking about comfort zones and and breaking free of them. And I, I've been on both sides of this because I remember, you know, coming in to the office, needing my coffee, ugh, sitting down at the computer. Okay, time to slog through a bunch of emails or whatever. And you mm-hmm. get one where they say, you know, hey, do you have this resource? Or do you have any information about that resource? Or can you start doing this? And, you know, the initial reaction is, well, that's not really what, what we do, or that's not what I do. <laughs> that's not my job. <laughs> that's not right. You know, you're just like, I'm just trying to get yeah. to find and go home. 
But then you then you go out and you go to a facility and you say, hey, I noticed that uh, this material is not accessible. Well, that's not our job. That's, you know, that's outside of the scope of what we've been doing. This has been working fine for all of these years. And uh, this isn't, you know, what we do. So we need to just uh, find a way to uh, hear each other and go and, and, and make make that extra mile really count. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that our organization, I think, does not do well, nor does the other one, really. There's a big perception out there that there's places, quote unquote, for us. Or, you know, I I don't know how many times I've been asked, where's your person? And and I always I go with the comical route. I go, what person? You know, your person. Well, my, (laughs) my, my mom passed away. My partner's at work. Um, What person are you referring to? You know, doesn't the government give you somebody? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Let me tell you, my house would be a lot cleaner and my meals would be a lot better. <laughs> I'll sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but let me tell you the intersectional qualities I would like in that person. <laughs> yes. Gerard Butler, yes. <laughs> but to go back to Leah's point, I think the generation of kids now are going to be much more amazing people than our generation. I don't know how many times I've heard parents go, oh, go say hi to the dog, honey. And the kid turns around and says, no, mommy, they're working. They're, we're, not a, we're not supposed to talk to them. <laughs> you have a grown parent saying, I'm trying to navigate with my dog, and you're telling your kid to go interrupt my business, and the kid is educating you. <laughs> so I, I have a great hope that, the youngest generation are going to grow up to be really great people. I hope so. Yeah, one can hope. Yes. And if I may, Ms. Ruthigan, can I go back for a second to the idea of um, putting guidelines into place, say, at like a nursing home so that LGBT residents' needs are met? I remember when my father was in a nursing home, and it was so strange. One day, there was a sign on the wall the next day, they were having a surprise inspection by the Department of Health. So how did they know? I don't know. So they said, the sign said, clean all public areas thoroughly. And so I thought, well, if the, all they want to do is appear to be taking care of the facility to keep it clean, wouldn't that kind of be what happens if you were to ask them, you know, enact some guidelines to be respectful of LGBT residents? They might say they're, they'll do it, but maybe they'll only do it when they're being watched. Is there any way to quantify that they're actually following guidelines if, if they did have them enacted? New Jersey has the Ombudsperson's Office, um, which is set up in order to respond to resident concerns about their care quality. And okay. so they can come out at any point. Um, it's not a surprise inspection. It's based on someone reaching out. But it would require LGBTQ you know, older adults knowing that they do have rights and that if the organization, which is mandated to do those guidelines, isn't, they do have a recourse. But, you know, it's getting that message out and making certain that, okay, it's 2023. It's been in, you know, in effect for a year and a half. It may take us actually educating the 60-year-olds and younger that this law exists. And so when that generation gets into the facilities, they're going to be much more vocal about whether those rules are being followed. Right. Although I know know that, um, Ms. Ruthigan, the ombudsman is a volunteer 
position. And in my county, there isn't one currently. And as far as I'm aware, I don't think they have any specific teeth, as it were. I don't think they can assess any punitive kind of fine or citation for a facility. Do you Amy, know? Could you speak to that? Because I thought it was a state funded. Now, the ombudsman's to be long-term care ombudsman's in, uh, it's a federal program, the office in every state. And they are responsible for upholding residents' rights and well-being in every state. They receive calls, emails, or complaints from residents, and they're required to investigate They also are allowed to make surprise inspections for quality of life issues at long-term care facilities in every state. The state funds the office through federal grants and everyone is paid. Now there are, the investigators are paid, the staff is paid, There are volunteers uh, across states that are trained to do some of these, not investigations, but to go in and do sort of evaluate a facility for being compliant with the uh, regulations. In New Jersey, the regulations now include the LGBTQ+. Bill of Rights. And the long-term care ombudsperson's office has added that to their training. We trained them and we trained their investigators to be able to go in and make sure that the facilities are following the regulation. That, and they will receive calls from residents or residents' families um, or support person if they feel they're being discriminated against or not being served appropriately based on, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, and HIV status, along with any other call about service concerns, fear, you know, both non-criminal and criminal. And then there's different actions they take. So if it's non-criminal, they send out investigators or the Department of Health investigators will go out. So either department can begin. Um, If it's criminal, it goes right to uh, law enforcement and the Department of Health work together. Uh, The long-term care ombudsman's office will not be privy once it becomes criminal. So there are federal rules and regulations on how this department, this office of the ombudsman works. Now, some counties create their own positions of senior ombudsperson and their role, uh, and some states do it and some states don't, often come through the health department And they do not have any authority to censure or violate a facility, but they do have authority to kick up concerns to their state uh, long-term care ombudsman's office or their state department of health. So there is connectivity there. 
even some cities and some towns have their own quote unquote unbuds person in their senior or health department serving seniors. So the word is used a little generally. And those can be volunteers or paid Um, by city, county. Uh, But the state programs is federally legislated. The teeth is investigation, review, and recommendations to the Department of Health. Then the Department of Health actually will issue a violation and remediation proposals. Oh, that's terrific. I'm glad to know there is, you're being trained. So you've, you've trained them. Your organization has trained them. The state. Yeah. But, but not the local. And that's something that County, yes, I see. Right. has to be thought about is that they're siloed again. Those yeah. county right. ombudsperson's right. offices should receive training on NJS 2545, which is <laughs> the law that the LGBTQ right. Bill of Rights. Cities, municipalities don't even know the law is in existence. I'm on the, the Jersey City Mayor's um, LGBT task force. And they were going, you know, they wanted to you know, kind of know what kind of areas to look at. And I said, well, are you looking at the nursing homes and long-term care facilities in Jersey City to make certain they're in compliance? And I got blank stares (laughs) from everybody. (laughs) So part of a mission is for starting to really think about how do we get out of the silos is that all the different levels of government don't necessarily talk to each other. And so we can't just assume that because we were working so well with a health department in, say, Ocean County, New Jersey, that, you know, the neighboring, you know, county one over Burlington knows. You know, about silos. It's just for long-term care facilities. So oh. every other touch point of a aging adult and senior is not required to do the training. Right. That's true. What happens? They go in for rehab, either being treated firmly and they leave rehab and go home to be discriminated against by the home care provider. There's no connection. That's so true. Now, um, David, um, Mr. Finger, would you, would you be willing and Amy to, um, speak with county advisory committees about these things? Absolutely. We've been doing outreach. I'm not not saying we're not training them because we don't want to. It's we have to have access to them. So if you you have those connections. There's no small potato. (laughs) What can folks that are listening to this and us as an organization, what what can we do to, to support you nationally? Because it seems like you've done really good work in New Jersey. And um, if there's only three states that have a version of what what's happening in New Jersey, that leaves a whole lot of places that could use a lot of work. What can you know we listeners do to support your work? A couple of different things. I mean, we've touched on as an organization, you should be gathering data so that you understand how to serve the LGBTQ plus community uh, that you service. And then two, definitely have everybody go on to uh, hrc.org, the human rights campaign, and sign up to support and advocate for passing the Equality Act. Beautiful. And everyone should use and request people's pronouns at all hellos 
<laughs> use your pronouns. I know some people are like, why are we doing the pronoun thing? It's very important, especially important for the visually impaired because you're not going to get other cues at first blush, right? Yeah. Every person should introduce themselves using their pronouns and should request pronouns of whom they are speaking with because the visually impaired don't have other tells, other cues, other things that they can see to indicate that it's an affirming and welcoming person they're talking to or a space they're entering. One of the things to realize about the sighted LGBTQ community is that they use visual cues. The rainbow flag, for instance, is one of those symbols that if you're walking in an area and you see a rainbow sticker on um, a store window, you now know that that store is going to more likely than not is going to be a supportive, affirming and safe place for you to shop. But if you're visually impaired or blind, you don't get to see those rainbow stickers easily. So we, you have to have a different way of doing that. And honestly, if somebody is introducing themselves with pronouns, it means that they are aware that people's voices, people's appearances are not necessarily equaling their gender. Mm-hmm. And that means that you have an extra sensitivity to the issues that really impact the LGBTQ plus community. So while it's not a rainbow sticker, the giving of pronouns is is actually a, a clue that the, the, this is m- my people, not necessarily an LGBTQ right. plus person, but my people, allies and yep. those like yep. me. And asking for pronouns so you know who you're talking about. Most people don't spend the first five minutes of their conversation describing everything about themselves, but using a pronoun means that you understand that there are a variety of sexual orientations, gender identities, and that, you know, you want to know to whom you are speaking. All right, Miss Ruth, um, if you have any other questions or wrap up. Oh, my only question is, will you come back again sometime? <laughs> we still have so much to cover. Yes, it's, we didn't even go go into some of the issues of uh, terminology that you wanted to explore on this. Right. Show. I think you'll have to have us back. So we Dave will. Do a, a full presentation for you. And you could do a whole history one, which you yes. love. I love to do it too. So sometimes we fight over it, but he, <laughs> but he's really wonderful talking about, you know, the, the historical trauma uh, that the community has and how it informs current um, physical and mental health care morbid- morbidities. It's a really interesting uh, presentation. I, I think we should we should have you both at our national convention this summer. Yeah. Great venue for the presentation. Your your part could be via Zoom, but we're going to be outside of Chicago this year in July. I love uh, Lou Malnati's pizza. So <laughs> <laughs> Chicago in the summer is better than Chicago in January. Good Lord, yeah. Good Lord. We're always looking for a, a trip that we can deduct. So bring us on. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk about it. Anthony is convention chair. So um, I just put a seed in his head. So as we get to the end of our podcast, I'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Amy Simon and Dr. David Rosen of LGBT Senior Housing and Care for being with us. And we hope this is just the beginning of a meaningful conversation around these important issues. We learned so much and we've been given so much to think about.
Thank you all for coming. You can reach LGBT Senior Housing and Care by visiting our website at www.lgbtseniorhousingandcare.com, all spelled out, lgbtseniorhousingandcare.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for having us. If you want to learn anything more about what we do here at BPI, if this is your first time hearing the show, or uh, you would like to get in contact and give us any kind of feedback, you could email membership at blindlgbtpride.org. It's all one word, no hyphens. Membership at blindlgbtpride.org. Or you can visit our website at www.blindlgbtpride.org. I hope that all of you are stepping into what will be a fantastic year. BPI has lots of great ideas and uh, plans for the upcoming year. And uh, we all hope that this is going to be a year to remember for many wonderful reasons. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org.